Good morning. Second uh, Corinthians chapter one. If you have a copy of God's Word, it is an honor to be here with you guys this morning. I do bring you greetings from the Trinity Church of Loudon out in Northern Virginia, not Northwest Virginia. That's West Virginia. Just just Northern Virginia, just further west than Arlington and Fairfax and all that. Greetings as well from uh, Jay and Mary Schwartz. Uh, founding members of your church, your loss was our gain. Uh, they've been joined to us for the last couple of years. Second Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to set the table by telling you about Jeff. <clears throat> uh, Jeff had a comfortable job on staff at a mega church when an opportunity came for Jeff to plant a new church one town over. Uh, Jeff was torn because ministry was really good at the megachurch. The hours were good. The pay was good. Marriage was good. Life was good. Uh, Jeff had wondered for a while if he should be a lead pastor at some point, uh, liked to preach, wanted to preach more, was told that he was a good preacher. But planting had never seriously crossed his mind because that's what the really brave uh, or the really dumb pastors did, or maybe the really brave and really dumb pastors But a small group of people Jeff really respected, really enjoyed, had approached him about the opportunity, and they were sure that Jeff was the guy. Even better, they said, we're coming with you. End of the day, Jeff couldn't resist the opportunity, and so a new church was born, and Jeff was the founding pastor. Well, things started well enough. Everybody was excited in the early days, the honeymoon period. People sitting on the sidelines in more established churches were now holding babies and kids ministry and setting up chairs and giving was strong and the church saw in those early days its first few converts and slowly but steadily that little church was starting to grow. Everything took a turn in year five. The comfortable facility the church had been renting Uh, surprisingly and out of nowhere, informed them that they could no longer host a religious institution, leaving a still young but now tired group of people to turn nomadic again. Jeff learned of a secret sin in the life of a member and spent months trying to sort it out, walking with the member who sometimes seemed contrite, other times seemed angry, sometimes even accusing Jeff as if it were somehow his fault. That member left and took a couple other key families with him, uh, feeling Jeff had mishandled the situation and caused problems. Oh, and then a couple other families met with Jeff to express concerns over those people leaving. It seems our church is now slowly shrinking, they said, wondering what Jeff was going to do about it. Obviously, it's his job to fix it. And of course, Jeff quietly wondered when they'd be leaving next. Now Jeff was on the brink five years later. He'd been running hard for five years. He wasn't exactly sure what burnout was, except that this must be it. And then one Tuesday, after another discouraging day at the office, Jeff came home to his crying wife, who informed him that their middle child had been diagnosed that day with a severe learning disability, confirming their worst fears and meaning, of course, a very difficult road ahead. Late that night, Jeff sent an email to his elders. He told them he felt he couldn't lead this church anymore. He 
told them that he was at his end and he felt that he had nothing left to give. Even more, he told them that he shouldn't be leading this church anymore. He was suffering, his family was suffering, and clearly God was not blessing this. Now would be a good time for me to point out that uh, this is not autobiographical, nor is Jeff code for John. <laughs> How awesome would that be if pastors brought their friends in, other pastors, to send code messages <laughs> condemning you and call it? That would not be awesome, actually. But I wonder what you would say to Jeff. You know, if you were one of his elders or just somebody in his church or somebody he consulted and shared his story and the church's story and kind of where he was and where his family was, I wonder what you would say to Jeff. Maybe you would tell him, hang in there, Jeff. It's, it's only going to get better and quietly think, well, it can't get any worse. Maybe you totally understand and encourage him to look for something else, something easier and better for his family. What would you say to Jeff? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and our passage this morning, we're going to read verses 3 through 7, and I hope as I was preparing and, and praying for this, and uh, a, a thought I kept having in my mind was, I hope this passage this morning and God's word as we share it together is encouraging for you and all of you, whether you're a pastor, an elder, uh, or a church member, wherever you are, I, just, I hope this morning's I'm not aiming at ringing anybody up, or there's a time and a place for that. I save that mostly for our congregation of just condemning and God's word. But I hope this morning is encouraging to you. Second Corinthians chapter one, beginning in verse three, we read this: "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction." so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so too through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comforts. I wonder if, if there's a word in there, which maybe there's a question I could ask the kids in the room. When I ask questions, ask for feedback in our congregation, the adults are always way behind, and the kids always yell out wrong, but then also right answers. So kids, I wonder if there's a word in there in what I just read, those verses, that stands out to you. You gotta yell at me. I don't know if you're allowed to yell at this church, but in our church, the kids are allowed. Comfort. Well done. Kids always get it right. Most of the time, get it right. Yeah, comfort. Did you, did you notice how many times the word comfort showed up in just those few, few verses I just read? Ten times Paul says the word comfort. 2 Corinthians has been called the letter of comfort, and if this is the letter of comfort, this paragraph, which we're in the middle of, is the paragraph of comfort. Ten times in five verses, comfort. There are two 
sort of twin towering themes in the letter Paul writes called 2 Corinthians. And those two twin towering themes are suffering and comfort. And if you could believe it, it's comfort in suffering. Not just comfort in spite of suffering, but comfort colliding in and in the midst of and because of and through our suffering. So that's what I want to offer to you this morning from God's word. Comfort for suffering, in suffering, in the midst of suffering, whether that's suffering today that you're enduring or suffering tomorrow that you will endure. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to show you four things from these few verses. First, I'm going to show you the source of comfort. Second, I'm going to show you the arena of comfort. Third, I'm going to show you the ministry of comfort. And finally, I'm going to show you the hope of comfort. So the source of comfort, the arena of comfort, the ministry of comfort, and the hope of comfort. Let's begin with the source of comfort. The letter to the Ephesians, you guys have studied Ephesians together, right? Wrong. We've studied Ephesians at our church. The letter to the Ephesians begins like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. First Peter begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can hear that repetition, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again. Second Corinthians, which we just read, begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same repetition, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Long before these words were written, the people of God have rebelled and have tasted judgment and exile and mourned and offered lamentations and found hope and warred with other nations and been defeated and been exiled again and then waited and waited and wondered and longed for and then waited some more. The prophet Isaiah wrote about all these things and then in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1, the prophet announces comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. A a new day was coming, Isaiah is saying, and that day is a day of comfort. He goes on to speak of God himself coming down in the book of Isaiah. It's the warrior God, and it's also the suffering servant himself coming down to fight for his people and even to suffer on behalf of his people, and all for the sake of, Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort, comfort. In Luke chapter 2, we read famous scene, famous verses. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So here we have old, righteous Simeon waiting for the consolation, we read, of Israel. That word, consolation, the consolation of Israel, is the same word for comfort. Same word Paul uses 10 times in our passage this morning. Simeon was waiting for comfort, the comfort of Israel. And the Spirit led Simeon to the temple where he met a young virgin named Mary and Joseph, her betrothed one. 
and he picked up their baby and he held in his arms Israel's comfort who had been promised long ago. And Simeon blessed God before he died. I wonder if that's how you think about God. As the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. This is the glory and the announcement of the new covenant and the messianic age which has dawned in the Lord Jesus and which we are living in today if we trust in Christ, which you are living in today if you're attached to Christ by faith. That's who God is to us and for us in Christ, the God of all comfort. Teenager gets a new car from his dad. Sweet 16, big birthday gift. Excited as he can be. Pulls the car out of the driveway. In his excitement, loses control. Doesn't pay attention. Backs right into the mailbox. Ruins the car. Calls his dad. After mustering up a lot of courage. Scared to death, dad's going to chew my gut. Brand new car. 16 years old. Fail. Ruin. Calls his dad. Dad's on the scene in 90 seconds. Lunges at him. Gives him a big hug. Are you okay, son? That's who God is for us in the new covenant. The God of all comfort. Not miserly. Not filled with regrets towards you or towards me having taken us in, but then hope we'd turn out a little bit better and our progress would be a little bit faster than it's turned out to be. Not accepting us, yes, ultimately saving us, but constantly disappointed in us. Never regretting taking us as sons and daughters. Everything this passage says about comfort and the ministry of comfort, here's the first thing I want you to see. It all originates in the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who in Christ has now smiled upon us. Which brings us to the arena of comfort. Second, let me show you the surprising arena of comfort. Let me ask you a question here. When you think of comfort, just, just take a moment, kids and adults, and just, just quietly think. Well, I wonder what comes to your mind. Maybe a picture. What picture comes to your mind when you think of comfort? I'm going to give you a second. And then I'm going to tell you where my mind goes and what picture my mind recreates when I do this same exercise. My mind goes to my wife and I have this routine, which we very much love, and I'm going to describe it to you. It may sound unspectacular to you, but it's quite glorious to us. So if we have a quiet night with nothing on the calendar, which is not all that often these days, we do dinner with the kids. One of us typically cleans the kitchen while the other one helps the kids get ready for bed. And when we're finished, we lay down on different sections of our sectional couch. And that's it. You thought I was building towards something. I was. I was building towards that moment where we lay down on the sectional couch. Sometimes we sit near each other. Sometimes it's just on different sections. Sometimes we talk. Other times there's just silence. Sometimes we just sit there. Sometimes we play on our phones. Sometimes we watch a show, but that's it. That's where my mind goes when I think of comfort. That's rest for me. That's comfort, and that's why I cherish it so much when we do every once in a while, find a night like that. Now, I think that's beautiful, but listen, this is really important. That's actually not how the Bible talks about comfort. In our world, and as I just pictured and described comfort for you, 
we typically mean when we talk about suffering, we typically mean basically the, when we talk about comfort, we typically mean the absence of suffering. So we use comfort, and the way I just use comfort, as basically a synonym for ease, right? And that's what many of us most long for. And so we turn comfort often, by which we mean, again, the absence of suffering, the absence of hardship, we turn that into an idol, which then often brings with it materialism because material things often fuel that definition, that picture of comfort, which is part of why we're often then, watch this vicious cycle, we often become nervous wrecks, plagued by anxiety. Why? Because our vision of the good life is a life of ease, absent of suffering, which we look to money or maybe relationships to secure for us. We need to listen carefully. If you're anything like me, and as I just described comfort, we need to listen carefully to God's word. Look at verse 4 where we read that the God of all comfort, Paul says he comforts us where? In our afflictions. Where do, we, where do you find God's comfort? In, in our afflictions, in your afflictions. Look at verse seven. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, Paul says, so then and so there you will also share in our comfort. So watch this. In our world, comfort is basically the absence of suffering. It's the opposite of suffering. That's how I just pictured and defined it for you. But in God's world, for God's people, suffering and comfort are like co-workers. In God's world, suffering is actually the arena for God's comfort. In other words, you'll especially find God's comfort there in your suffering. Every person in this room is a sufferer, and we suffer in various ways, and listen, the Bible acknowledges all of them. Sometimes we play these games where we act like, well, those count in Afghanistan or in North Korea, but not, not these, not mine. We play these little games, and there are different types of suffering, to be sure, and we should acknowledge that, but the Bible acknowledges them all, and they all count. So even here in our passage, if you look at the passage carefully, you see Paul acknowledging different kinds of sufferings. In verse 5, he speaks of and he uses the words which is translated in our Bibles as sufferings. And that word in verse 5 is used throughout the New Testament to speak of persecutions. So like danger, even, even death. So that is that word. But then in verses 4 and verse 6, he speaks of what your Bible maybe has translated as afflictions. You see, you see afflictions there? That's a different word than verse 5, sufferings. And this word the New Testament also uses often to refer to all kinds of pains, whether physical or even mental or emotional. Emotional anguish. The, it could also be translated, this other word, as distress. So the point is, Paul sort of covers the gamut here. We, we suffer in a wide variety of ways. There is the suffering of persecution. So mockery, imprisonment, beheading. There's also suffering from pain or from health, cancer, Alzheimer's. There's also emotional suffering, anxiety, depression, different effects we encounter as the result of abuse. There's the suffering from loss, change, abandonment, divorce. There's suffering we experience within our family units, conflict, estrangement, 
watching your kids struggle to fit in. They're suffering of loneliness, friendless, spouseless, betrayed. There's the suffering of unmet longings, lost dreams of marriage or of children or lost community. There's the suffering of aging, slowing down, facing death, and many, many more. And I just want to point out, they all count. Yours count too. We are all sufferers, and until glory, suffering casts a long shadow over this life, and the longer you live, the bigger and the realer that shadow tends to become. But until glory, our passage is reminding us, even promising us, God will meet us there, and especially there. That is in our suffering, in our anguish of whatever kind, that is the special place where God has made special arrangements to always meet us with special supplies of grace and of comfort. It's, our, it's the Christian secret spot with God where we hurt, where we anguish, where we suffer. And by the way, you know why that's true? That's true because God himself went into that place. That's the story of the gospel, isn't it, for those of us who understand and believe God's word? That God himself, that God of the universe we praised earlier, who oversees, I didn't honestly even under, I need to go home and watch the Nature Channel, the, all that bat and fruit and cacti and all that. Praise God. That God, the God of the ages, the God of the universe, became man, took on flesh, and then went further on this wild trajectory down, down from heaven into this earth, from celestial being to human flesh, from glory to suffering, even to suffering on a cross, dying on a cross, being buried in the ground, nobody done beneath the dirt before rising again. That's our God. Maybe that's why he especially meets us there because he's the one who became that for us. That that might not be our final word and final destiny. He entered into our death, our pain, our suffering. Hebrews says he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's not ashamed to call us brothers or sisters because he's been there before us that we might not stay there eternally. And that could be your story, your changed ending if you would trust in Christ this morning as your Savior. Kids, you're going to find out very soon, if you haven't already yet, life gets hard. And when it does, something has not necessarily gone wrong. When it does get hard, also, God will be there for you too if you'll look to him. And my encouragement and advice to you now would be if you're not there now, learn to meet with God now before you get there. And if you are there now, cry out to God. He loves to meet his people, even children, when they're in pain, especially when they're in pain. Parents, if I could speak to you directly, a lot of parents I see in the room this morning, what do you really want for your kids? None of us wants our kids to suffer, of course. But because of that, and because of that natural and even good desire, because of that, we can sometimes almost make the point of our parenting to somehow bubble them off from hardship, which of course is impossible because suffering is inevitable for everybody. 
And so, of course, protect them, and we should protect them, but our job is not actually to bubble them off from discomfort. Our job is to teach them how to find God's comfort and how to endure when they do suffer. Far better to be comforted by God than to be comfortable apart from God. That's devastating. Suffering is the arena. It's the special stage where we encounter and meet God's comfort. Which brings us thirdly to the ministry of comfort. And this is what I'm, well, many things, but this is one of the things I'm so excited to show you this morning because I want to commend this to you. I think Paul is commending this special ministry to us and for us and not just pastors or elders or apostles. He's commending this to the saints, to everybody. When Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, you've probably heard his name, uh, when he died, there was a man in the room making record of everything that was happening and also in that moment in the room comforting the dying reformer. You've probably, even if you're a Luther guy, I bet some of you are those weird people who read lots about the Reformation, which is awesome. But even if you're one of those weird people, I bet you've not heard of this guy who was in the room. His name was Justice Jonas. And he was a close friend and associate of Luther's for many years. He actually preached Luther's funeral where he offered comfort to those who were mourning the loss of their friend, even their hero. Four years earlier, before Luther's death, Luther had written an affectionate letter to Justice Jonas as Jonas was burying his wife. The letter was full of tender sympathies, but also bold reminders of gospel truth. Luther wrote, quote, although according to the flesh, this departure has been very bitter, nevertheless, we shall be reunited in the life beyond, and we shall enjoy the sweetest communion with the departed, as well as with him who loved us so that he purchased our life through his own death. End quote. Earlier that same year, the same year that Luther wrote those words to Jonas, who was burying his wife, earlier that same year, Luther had buried his own 13-year-old daughter, Magdalena, which had completely wrecked him. Suffering typically, dangerously, turns us inward. That, that's sort of the natural human response to suffering. We we sort of cave in on ourselves. That's a default, perhaps, defense mechanism, which we're hardwired and prone to do. But here's, here's what I want you to see. Here's God's design. When I suffer, God meets me there. And he especially meets me there. And meeting me there, he provides a special gift for me, which Paul calls comfort. It's a gift that God alone can give in this way, and it's designed specifically for me, and he gives me that gift, especially and only especially in that moment when I'm suffering. That gift sustains me, nourishes me, changes me, grows me, sets my eyes more upon him, my hopes more upon him. And God's design, watch this, in giving that gift of comfort to me is that now I'm equipped to turn around and offer that same gift to somebody else 
when and as they suffer. Now, I didn't have this gift before, before I went through my own trials and tribulations, before God met me there in the midst of my pain. So before, when I saw my friends suffering, I might have said something really foolish, even harmless. You ever been there before? I know I've said many things that I wish I could take back to somebody who was in a lot of pain. True things that are really harmful, you know what I'm saying? I might have said really bad things before, when I saw their pain, but now I have this gift which God has given to me, and now I can give this gift to them. So watch this. this if you could think of it, it's almost like this, this circle of comfort is formed where I was suffering, and then God met me there and gave this gift to me and shaped me and grew me by this gift, and even in some senses, perhaps healed me by this gift. And then a day later or a year later or a decade later, I saw that my friend or my family member or my loved one was suffering. And in that moment, I offered the same gift that was given to me by God to them. I become the conduit of God's grace for them. I'm offering God's mercy and God's comfort to them. And then they received that gift from God, perhaps through me. And then fast forward a few years later, I'm suffering again. It, we might even come full circle. You see this whole, are you, are you guys with me? This circle of comfort, God means for it to be formed. This is the ministry of comfort. Verse 4, God who comforts us in all our affliction, watch this, so that, here's why God gives you this gift of comfort in your affliction, so that we or you may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Look at verse 6. If we, what, think about what Paul's saying. This is almost nonsensical unless you get this sort of circle of comfort. Verse 6. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. My suffering, God partly designs it for you and your good, you see? The member in our church who is perhaps the most fruitful in walking with others who are struggling with anxiety, which is a very common thing in, I don't know if it's a suburbs thing or what, 2022 20, thing, but a very common thing. And the member who is the most fruitful in walking with others in our church who is struggling with anxiety is a person who has dealt with bouts of anxiety that's so bad it can become paralyzing, like can't function, and has done so for years and has learned to find God's comfort there. That's the most fruitful member we have in helping. Somebody, I hear of another person uh, encountering anxiety, I'm pointing them to that person. Some of the most fruitful women in our church are singles who have longed and prayed for marriage and children for decades and have not, at least yet, seen God answer those prayers and who have learned in their waiting to find comfort and even contentment in the God of all comfort through a long path of waiting and of disappointment and of feeling alone, and now are able to walk with not just younger sisters, but younger men and women who are not just suffering from the unmet expectations of marriage, but all kinds of different pain. Remember church planner Jeff, who I began with. You know, maybe he should go and do something else. Maybe that's the best way for him to love and care for his family, and I have no doubt that is sometimes the case. Or maybe his present sufferings are an opportunity, a special opportunity for him to meet the God of all comfort in a new and powerful way and to receive in that meeting 
the gift of comfort in a new and powerful way to then enrich his ministry to a church full of fellow sufferers in a new and powerful way, you see? This is the ministry of comfort. People just want gifted ministers of the gospel, much better to want tested ministers of the gospel who have proven faithful, even and especially through suffering. Some of you here this morning may be yourself suffering. We're all suffering in various ways, but some of you may acutely feel the pain of present sufferings. One of the ways I mentioned, or maybe in some other way, and I want to encourage you to hang on and to find God's comfort and to pray and to beg for and to seek out God's comfort, not just because he'll provide it for you, but because somebody else in here might need what you're going through right now and what you can receive from God when they're suffering down the road and may need the gift of comfort which you might only find through faith during this suffering that you're presently enduring in which the way God's designed it, there's just not another way to find it. There's not another way to find this gift of comfort other than suffering yourself and which you can then give to them. That's the ministry of comfort. Those of you who maybe have long ago suffered immensely, sometimes I think Satan can even tempt us ironically that in some sense disqualifies us from caring for others, from having a voice to speak to others. Do you hear that God's word is telling you the exact opposite? That what you've already endured if you've met God there or even if you meet him now as you deal with past sufferings, that is what especially qualifies you to speak to others and to minister to and care for others. That's the ministry of comfort. Which brings us finally to the hope of comfort. The last thing I want to show you, then we're done is the hope of comfort. Everything I've said so far, I think, works and will preach. And I've heard a fair amount of, mm-hmm, especially from John, praise God, that's what a good preacher does. I'm going to do that when you come preach to me. You just, mm-hmm, keeps the guy going, lets him know it's all right. <laughs> Everything I've said so far will preach. When you suffer, God will comfort you. That, that preaches. But there's a problem. And I think the problem is vagueness. When you suffer, God will comfort you. Great. How? With what? What is his comfort? How do I know it's from him and not from something else? How do I find it? What if I'm there suffering and I'm crying out to God, but I'm not finding anything but seemingly silence? You see, you see how vagueness here, if you don't define those sorts of details, then this sermon so far, again, it'll preach, but it's almost like a sort of Hallmark card of Christian cliches. God, I'll meet you there in your pain. And I would just point out that cliches might work for those of us who've had calm lives. And cliches certainly work when we're thinking about the Ford. Oh, yeah, when I suffer, God will meet me there. But not for those of us who have tasted the dark poison of suffering. Those people need definitions. And I would say that we all do. The rest of you do as well. At least you will, and I will when our dark day comes, when we encounter the darkness of suffering. When I first worked on this passage, I planned to preach uh, just chapter one, verses three through seven, the verses I've read and we've covered so far. And I, I planned to preach those verses because I'd been meditating on those verses. They're so wonderfully encouraging and helpful, just reading them yourself. But the more I read and studied, I became actually at the very last last second, 
and last minute of preparation convinced that I couldn't preach verses 3 through 7 without also getting to verses 8 through 11. Because they actually go together, and they go together in this way. Paul, Paul gives to us this paragraph of comfort, which I've read and we've already thought about together for several minutes. But then after that, beginning in verse 11, he tacks on this little personal story to it. And when you first read the story, you might think, oh, he's just changed subjects, or he just remembered something that happened to him that he thought would be worth your time. It, it almost seems unrelated. But in fact, I think it's this story that provides the definitions that we need to better and more fully grasp how verses 3 through 7 and this ministry of comfort actually works. It's this little story in verses 8 through 11 that attaches the specifics and the details through the life and example of Paul to what he's already commended. Let me show you what I mean. Let's, let, me, let, me, let me actually read for you the rest of the passage. So eyes on 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'll pick up now in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction which we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. We often live our lives on margins. And honestly, in an area like this, in DC world, we especially live our lives on oftentimes bare, thin margins, don't we? And sometimes, for different reasons, whether because of the place we live or just what God gives us in life, those margins become thinner and thinner. And it's in those moments when those margins are at the absolute thinnest that if anything else goes wrong, then, then it's over, you see? That's when we bottom out. I think of a person close to me right now who has a really difficult child who was adopted having already endured lots of trauma. And so, I mean, they knew coming in, but then how much do you really know? And so it just, it's going to be very difficult for the rest of their parenting of this child. And so they're dealing with that on a daily basis. And then another child more recently received a very difficult diagnosis, one of their biological biological children received a difficult diagnosis. And so they're completely stretched to the max. They're barely scraping by on every morsel of God's grace that they can sustain. They're already there. They're on the brink. Those margins are paper thin. And in that moment and in that setting, they just learned that one of their children was being repeatedly and secretly harmed by an adult neighbor, and they had no idea. Now, have you ever been there? Maybe not there, those specifics, but have you ever been there when it was paper thin and then something even more devastating or just one more, one more awful pill was given to you? 
surviving by the thinnest thread of a margin. And then a piece of straw floating in the air, tossed to and fro in the wind, at the last second lands squarely on the camel's back, which is your life. And that's it. And you break. Maybe some of you are here this morning. It's not clear what Paul's talking about when he mentions his affliction here in Asia. It could have been the mob in Ephesus we read about in Acts 19, but that's not clear. But what is clear is that Paul received the sentence of death, he says. That might be literal or figurative. Either way, it's the same point. Death seemed like a given for Paul in this moment. And in that moment, Paul's telling us that he himself, the great apostle Paul, actually hit that point. His margins were exhausted. He could not get up off the ground. That's what he means when he says, that's what the phrase means, we were burdened beyond our strength. We're done. Nothing left. On the ground, can't get up again. And it was in that moment when the affliction for the apostle was too much and when everything seemed over, it was in that moment that Paul says the God of comfort showed up with fresh supplies of comfort. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the details and the specifics that Paul saw so that this isn't Hallmark. What was the comfort that God showed up in Paul's moment? What, what, do, you, do you see it? Look at verse 9. Let me show you. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Watch this. Paul is on the brink of death. He can smell death. And there on the brink, God shows up. And who specifically showed up? The resurrecting God. The God who raised Jesus from the dead. The God whose son incarnate was raised from the dead, defeating death. And the God who raises the dead. That's who showed up. Those are the specifics. Paul's not talking about a subjective feeling here. Sort of, God's got this when I'm bad. That's great, but this was way better. Paul's Paul's talking about the resurrection of the dead. That's what God supplied in that moment of his greatest need. He brought the power of the gospel and specifically the power of the resurrection to Paul. And that helped him to survive. You see, there's this principle in the gospel. The world doesn't understand it. It is is above our world. It's beyond our world. And the principle is this. Death, because of Jesus, death produces life. Because Jesus has entered into death and has tampered with it. Because Jesus has entered into the chains of death and then ruptured them, resurrecting to life. Death produces life. And I want to point out, Saving faith in Jesus attaches us, fastens us to that same principle of death producing life. So that in your life, if you're a Christian, death produces in your life the smell of life. So that suffering, if you're a Christian, brings resurrection-reminding comfort. To your life, 2 Corinthians 4.10, just a little bit later, listen to what Paul says. We're always carrying in ourselves the body of the death of Jesus. Death, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. There's an intimate connection 
in the Christian life, because of the gospel, because of who Jesus was, because of what Jesus did, there's an intimate connection between death and life. Death has been turned on its head. It was the end. It was the final judgment. It was the sentence. Now it actually produces in us life. Death reminds us of life. Death inches us closer to life. Death is the pathway to life for those who are in Christ. Resurrection hope. Resurrection power. And so, when your dark day comes, and it will for every single one of us if we live long enough, I want to caution you. I want to warn you of looking within, of looking to your own strength, to your own resources. That is a deadly trap. It's what the world does, and it's a deadly trap which will lead to nowhere but despair. Even Paul, even Paul had to be taught in those moments where he faced that darkness not to rely on himself. Look at verse 9. That was to make us, Paul saying, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Don't look within. And I'm warning you, and I'm warning myself too, because that's what you're going to be tempted to do. Paul was tempted to do it. Rather, God's word is commending to us to look to the Father of mercies and to the God of all comfort who raises the dead, who shows up in our darkest hours and who produces life from death, who himself took on flesh, entered into our world for the purpose of dying, that he might turn death on its head who will deliver us from this affliction and every affliction, including yours, perhaps in this life, that we might rejoice and now comfort others with the gift which we were given, surely in death and in the next life, where we will be comforted forever. That's what it means for God to be the God of all comfort. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his entering into the depths of our humanity and even into death, and for bearing life in the midst of death, that our death, that our suffering, that our pains, that our anguish, that our distress, that our anxieties, that everything we encounter, all our worries, all our fears, might not be the death sentence but might actually be tools and instruments or stages and arenas for you to meet us and meet with us and provide the gift of comfort and to show your resurrecting power, reminding us of life. God, I pray especially for those in our midst this morning who are in the midst of suffering and who at present are, for any of a host of reasons, suffering. Oh God, we pray together and we plead with you that you would meet with them in a special way, oh God. And that they would know your presence and know that you're meeting with them and that you would comfort them, you would produce life in them and you would give them the ministry of comfort. And God, we pray especially for this entire young church. Oh God, would you cause the ministry of comfort to abound in the life of this church family? Uh, That this would be a people who knows and has tasted of your comfort and gladly gives it to others. 
constantly. We pray that sufferers would feel like they find a happy home here because they find sympathizers and people who sit and who bear burdens and who love them and who give the gift of comfort. We pray you would continue working these things by your power and for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.